Today on Ag News Daily. Agriculture had been in what I would call a gradual but persistent downturn for the past six or seven years at a time when the U.S. economy more broadly was in its longest economic expansion on record. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how is your Wednesday looking today? It is looking pretty good, Ashton. I tell you what, working from home, my dog has been super spoiled. He thinks he has to sit on my lap all day long while I'm working. So if you hear any little doggy snores or little doggy barks, it's just just my dog sitting on my lap. Well, I just got to my parents' house yesterday for the rest of the the year, really, spending Christmas and, and New Year's with them, of course, and I'm very excited because I get to be around all of our dogs. We have three dogs and a cat that stay inside with us, so if you hear any noises, it's them from my end. Oh, good. Well, we've got lots of animals today on the podcast then. We sure do, but I want to go ahead and kick things off talking about some news here. And uh, you, I believe, talked about John Deere yesterday, and I have a short John Deere story as well today. It is set to test its new see and spray AI technology next growing season using machine vision and machine learning to identify individual plants. The technology is meant to identify and spray herbicides on specific plants, reducing herbicide use. The technology, which was developed by a AI company Blue River, takes pictures of each plant while the sprayer is moving and decides whether or not to spray nearly instantly. I wish I would have found this yesterday so we could have shared it on our Tech Tuesday segment, but this might just be something that I have to try and get somebody from John Deere to come and talk about on the podcast once they go through the testing segment of the process. Yeah, absolutely, Ashton. That's very interesting to hear about. It certainly is. But uh, what other headlines are you watching out for today, Delaney? Well, uh, yesterday we had news that the NOPA crush number for November came in at 101 million bushels, blowing past last year's record of 164.9 million bushels. So this was a little higher than the trade was originally expecting. And we saw soybeans reacting very positively to the news. You know, the, the factor here is that we're chewing through a lot of soybeans when it comes to to crushing demand, and that is definitely bullish for soybean prices long term. And as we talked about earlier this week, you know, demand doesn't hurt, especially when we're waiting to see what happens down there in South America. Well, Delaney, one other thing that we've been talking about recently on the podcast is the relationship, the trade relationship, I should say, between Australia and China. And earlier today, Australia launched a formal appeal to the World Trade Organization seeking a review of China's decision to impose hefty tariffs on imports of Australian barley. Acknowledging that this appeal may take years to be resolved, Trade Minister Simon Birmingham told reporters that Australia had little choice after Beijing imposed anti-dumping and anti-subsidy duties in May, totaling 80.5% on Canberra's barley, effectively stopping a billion-dollar trade in its tracks. 
a World Trade Organization official confirmed that they had received Australia's request for consultations, starting a formal 60-day period for Australia and China to talk before an educating panel can be formed. Interesting. I guess I'm not surprised that this is the most recent development, Ashton. I hadn't seen this yet. Who was uh, reporting that we will, in fact, see some sort of WTO intervention? It was actually reported by Reuters. So I can share this, of course, tomorrow on our newsletter if somebody or, you know, if if listeners want to go on and read a little bit more about this. The article just goes on to talk about how this appeal threatens to, you know, intensify the bilateral relationship that China and Australia have right now, which really doesn't come as a surprise, I think, to anyone. No, I agree. Interesting. All right, Ashton. Well, this is this story is reported by Bloomberg. A couple of ones actually here for us today. The first of which is an interesting story, going to be maybe not a huge impact, but it could be. I mean, you never know for sure. Anyways, the EU is putting out or has recently put out an announcement that their per capita annual meat consumption is going to be set to drop to 67.6 kilograms per person by 2030. They are saying, or the European Commission is saying, as of a report on Wednesday, that declines driven by drops in beef and pork production happening across the EU, while poultry production is set to rise. But they're saying that their consumers are very environmentally and climate change focused and that they are instilling values in them, I suppose you could say, of eating less meat. Again, 1.6%. I'm not sure that's a huge number that it's going to really change the demand scene a whole lot. But I think that's interesting to see kind of the top down suggesting to their consumers that they should be choosing to eat less meat, eat less red meat, I should say, because it's healthy for the environment and it's more environmentally sustainable. I don't know. Just an interesting suggestion. I don't agree with it, but interesting suggestion. Well, Delaney, I have some poultry news, and of course, it is talking about the bird flu outbreak that is continuing to sweep across Japan. Of course, I have reported numerous times about this bird flu outbreak, but um, right now, it's really being seen in Japan. I haven't heard much from other European countries um, in, in a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, in fact, but Uh, Japan's worst bird flu outbreak on record has spread to new farms this week, and they have been found in around a quarter of the country's 47 prefectures, with officials ordering more cullings. About 32,000 birds will be slaughtered and buried in Tsukumo City in Kochi Prefecture in southwestern Japan after the bird flu was discovered at an egg farm. More infected birds were found on two farms in Kagawa Prefecture, where the poultry epidemic emerged last month in Japan, with nearly 30,000 birds being slaughtered there. And the outbreak has hit 12 prefectures in total across Japan, and a record 3 million birds have been culled to date. So I don't think that in any other European country that we've seen bird flu, you know, ramp through this year, it, it hasn't been at least to this effect that Japan is seeing. I, I don't think, I don't want to make a total factual claim on that, but these numbers are kind of astounding to me. So Ashton, how many countries now have we seen 
cases reported in? That is a good question. I know, of course, for sure, Japan, Germany, I believe France, the Netherlands, Denmark, um, maybe Russia. I can't quite remember. I don't have these countries at hand, but I know those for sure and maybe a few others in the EU. Okay, so quite a, a good handful. Yes, quite quite a handful. I'm kind of waiting to see. Of course, you know, those countries are all clumped together there um, and we're across the pond, I guess you could say, for, for lack of better mm-hmm. terms. Um, so we haven't seen anything hit the U.S. quite yet. And I believe I can't remember if in any earlier articles have reported that for Japan's sake, that it has been, you know, spread through wild birds, but at least for the majority of the countries in the European Union and some other foreign countries as well, that it has been in wild birds. So that's, you know, my only guess is that if we are going to see it in the U.S., it's going to be from those wild birds as well. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with you there, Ashton. Uh, I'm going to switch tracks here just a little bit to talk about a geopolitical event that's going on right now. And it seems like this is one we talk about quite a bit, but strikes in South America. We've, we talk about this, it seems like, almost every year as Brazil and Argentina don't have quite as a easily ran government as maybe we see here in the United States. But we've now seen a week of strikes by soybean crushers and grain inspectors in Argentina, which sounds like it's all but paralyzed operations at the ports. And if you'll think back, Argentina is the world's largest exporter of soy products, and this strike is not posing well for them to be able to get their products out of the country. The strikes are having rippling uh, rippling effects all across the country. Agricultural traders are having problems trading the commodity. We're seeing actual physical grain commodity issues, of course, with the ports not being able to load vessels and unload vessels. And, you know, I think the the potential, you know, long-term effect we we have here, or even a little bit of a friendly effect here for the soybean markets is not only did we have that increase in soy crush here domestically, now we're seeing the potential to have some increased business while this strike is going on in Argentina. It's only been going on for about a week. Who knows how long it'll last, though? I mean, you look at other issues we've seen down there in South America, like the Brazilian trucker strike, that went on for a couple months. So this could very well give us the opportunity to get some long-term business here. Maybe short-term is really a better way to put it. You know, a couple weeks, a couple months, who knows how long the strike will last, but that does lend itself to be favorable to increased U.S. soy exports, Ashton. Well, Delaney, I am, I guess, excited but anxious to see where this goes, but I think we've had some great news stories to share on the podcast today, but I'm all out of news if you want to hop into the markets. I do. I have just one other quick story here to share about Brazilian ethanol. I believe we talked about it earlier this week, or maybe it was last week. I'm drawing a blank right now. But we talked about um, Brazil's need or decision to impose a 20% tariff on all U.S. ethanol. Well, we've seen U.S. ethanol and corn groups react and are quite irate, these are their words, not mine, about Brazil's issuance of a 20% tariff on American ethanol following a breakdown in talks between these two countries as of recently. We saw Brazil first impose this 20% tax on August 31st, 
if you'll think back, I know that feels like forever ago, we saw that really be the first time to see a 20% tax. And um, after U.S. and Brazilian negotiators tried but failed to reach a deal that would prevent that expiration, we now see that tax go into effect. The two sides, you know, reached a temporary solution in September to suspend the tariff for 90 days while they tried to continue talking about a solution. But like I said, negotiators have failed. And so a new 20% export tax will go on all U.S. ethanol heading into the country of Brazil. So that's not very favorable for corn markets for the ethanol markets long term. Hopefully negotiators are able to figure their way out of this. But as of right now, it's not looking too promising, Ashton. It doesn't sound like it, Delaney. And hopefully, like you said, those negotiators can figure out what's going on. But like I said, I'm all out of news for today and I'm ready to see where the markets ended. As am I, Ashton. And pulling up the markets for today, We didn't have too much excitement in today's markets. It was kind of a non-event, non-trading day, if you will. Kicking things off here in the March corn contract, up just two and a half cents to close at 4.27 and a quarter. The December up a penny and a quarter, close at 4.13 and a half. In the soybean pits, the January contract up a half cent today to close at 11.83 and three quarters. The March up three quarters of a cent to close at 11.88 even. In the Chicago wheat pits, March today shed a penny and a quarter to close at 5.98 and a half. The December down two and two quarters cents to close at 6.03 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, a little bit more strength today as we saw the December, excuse me, as we saw the February live cattle contract adding 90 cents to close at 113.77. The April up 70 to close at 117.82 and a half. And in feeders, January adding 75 cents on the day to close at 140.85. The March up a dollar 07 to close at 141.97 and a half. Lean hogs a little lower on the day today as February shed 47 and a half cents to close at 65.97. The April down a quarter to close at 69.32 and a half and drowning out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. January shedding six cents today close at 16.26. February down 41 to close at 17.40. Now, Ashton, without further ado, why don't you fill us in on what we're talking about for today's interview? Today, we are talking about the financial status of agriculture, featuring some information from an NAFB 2020 session. Our speaker today, Nathan Kaufman. Nathan is here with us, and we surely appreciate his time and the information that is shared today. As uh, we talk with Nathan uh, earlier, he is ready to supply some great and timely information to us uh, today. I want to tell you a little bit about him as a vice president of Omaha branch and executive with the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and is the Kansas City Fed's principal expert in agricultural economics. He is a leading voice of the ag economy throughout the seven states for the 10th Federal Reserve District and the broader Federal Reserve System. Nathan oversees several bank and Federal Reserve efforts to track ag economics and financial conditions and hosts the Kansas City Fed's annual ag symposium. He also speaks regularly on the agricultural economy to industry audiences and the news media 
including providing testimony at both U.S. Senate and U.S. House Ag Committee hearings. Let's everybody welcome Nathan Kaufman. Nathan. Well, thank you, Rita, and thanks to the NAFB for inviting me to join this morning. Um, I feel like I start a lot of these meetings by recognizing that I would far prefer being in person, but we appreciate the opportunity to be able to participate virtually in these sorts of events. And I think this is important work to be able to share developments in, in agriculture. And I appreciate being part of this, this morning's program. Um, just a little bit about um, agriculture and the Kansas City Fed for people who may not be familiar, as was mentioned in my introduction, this is a key area of focus for me in the seven states that we cover in the Kansas City Fed, but for the Federal Reserve System more broadly. So for those of you not familiar with the Kansas City Fed, we cover seven states in the, of the country, going from Nebraska in the north down to Oklahoma. Um, we also have Colorado, Wyoming, part of New Mexico, and part of Missouri. But as I describe that region, it's probably not surprising to all of you on the line here this morning that, that is, it is a region very concentrated in agriculture. We have a lot of institutions connected either directly or indirectly to the sector um, and also by way of finance and banking. And so this has been an industry that we've followed for a long time, but of course, during the course of this year has been um, something that we've followed even a bit more as developments have been changing pretty rapidly. So I appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts as it relates to uh, agriculture in our region and nationally, but also I will highlight my comments and, and focus my comments a bit more on agricultural credit conditions and finances. This has been something that's been of concern really the past several years, but especially at the onset of some of the, the, the early months of the pandemic and as we've moved closer to the end of the year. So I want to start by um, giving just a, a main uh, message that I that I want to make sure um, comes through fairly clearly this morning. And, and that is, I think, to recognize that as we assess broad conditions in agriculture and financial conditions specifically, it's it's worth emphasizing and noting that this outlook has, has been far improved from six months ago. Um, it's still not to suggest that the outlook is necessarily positive, but six months ago, some of the conditions, and I'll describe those in a moment very briefly and high level, were rather concerning in agriculture, especially as we looked at the months of April and May, or really the second quarter of this year. There are still risks in the sector, and as we go into 2021, I suspect that some of the risks and concerns we'll be discussing are largely those that we've been discussing the last several years, and I'll try to point some of those out as well. So just a little bit of context that I think is important to recognize where we were coming into 2020 before identifying those things that I think are important going through the past several months of the pandemic. Um, it's worth mentioning and emphasizing, I think, that agriculture had been in what I would call a gradual but persistent downturn for the past six or seven years at a time when the U.S. economy more broadly was in its longest economic expansion on record. Um, this is important because ag entered 2020 already facing some challenges. At the beginning of the year, uh, nationally, the USDA would have forecasted that liquidity, for example, in the farm sector was expected to be about 15 percent less in 2020. And this was even before the pandemic um, and would have been a trend that was continuing from the past several years. So a number of consecutive years of relatively low prices, low profits, um, concerns about liquidity, increases in delinquencies and you know gradual increases in farm bankruptcies had generated a lot of concern the last number of years. So that was the picture for agriculture coming into 2020. But of course, we know that the early months of the pandemic um, obviously changed some of the kinds of things that we would have been talking about. 
So for this morning, um, I want to briefly highlight four, what I think are four key developments of things that happened immediately in the pandemic. And then also as those four developments changed, why I think the outlook is a bit more positive than what it had been, certainly relative to April and May, but even relative to just a few short months ago. So the four that I want to highlight are as it relates to development surrounding travel. Um, so obviously we know that the restrictions and shutdowns that took place early on had a tremendous impact across our economy. And so I want to highlight that one. Um, supply chain disruptions would be a second one. And then the shift from groceries from restaurants to grocery stores would be a third. And then I want to talk about exports and the value of the dollar as a fourth component. So when we when I when we talk about the first one here and as it relates to reduced travel, um, as it connects to agriculture, and I want to go through these relatively quickly to get to the um, more recent concerns about credit conditions and leave some time for questions. From January until April, as we looked at developments in travel and focused specifically on how that might affect agriculture, it's worth underscoring here that uh, ethanol production had been down by about 50%. So at the peak of the crisis, or what I would call the peak of the crisis in late March and early April, we were hearing about a number of ethanol plants that were closing down and production really was at about a 50% level. So that was one of the first developments, obviously has tremendous implications for agriculture in the Midwest, but specifically connected to corn and other uh, grain operations. The second was the supply chain disruptions that we saw alongside COVID-19. So we know of all of the obviously cases that had been rising early on. We're now in the midst of, of you know, more concern as it relates to increases in cases. But where some of those cases started to show up was specifically in meatpacking plants. And we had been seeing some fairly significant supply chain disruptions for those types of operations that would have been having some cases initially as it related to COVID-19 and needed to close down temporarily. At one point, again, in the peak of the crisis, many of our uh, beef and pork processing plants would have been operating at about 60% capacity. So as you think about that being a bottleneck in the supply chain for agricultural products, that would have had a tremendous impact on cattle prices or hog prices, for example, at a time when even those products were in high demand at, at grocery stores. So that brings me to the third that I want to mention. And, and I know that there are probably many others here, but I really want to just focus on these four. And I think that you'll find as, as I go further here that each of these four has improved pretty significantly. Um, relative to uh, the months before the pandemic and comparing those months with April and May, the percentage, the amount of, of dollars that were spent on uh, food away from home, meaning at restaurants specifically, had declined by about 50%. So on average, before the pandemic, we would have expected that um, the, the amount of money that consumers or households spent on food was roughly similar uh, or roughly equal between food spent uh, away from home and food spent at, at grocery stores for consumption at home. But there was a, a, a notable change in how consumers, obviously, or households were, were buying food. So that was the third, recognizing that the kinds of food products that are ultimately purchased at grocery stores and supermarkets is going to be very different than the kind of food, the cuts of meat, and those sorts of things that, that consumers are buying in restaurants. So recognizing, again, that data point showing a 50% decline in the amount of uh, amount purchased away from home. 
the last that I want to highlight, and, and then I'm, I'm going to turn to something that's more optimistic here in a, in a moment. Um, in the first half of 2020, our agricultural exports globally were down 3% relative to the previous year. Exports to China, for example, were down were 20% less than in 2017. And you may recall, as we came into 2020 with the signing of the phase one trade agreement, that, that there was some optimism that those exports to China specifically, but more broadly globally, would be improved from those peak 2017 levels. The target for the phase one trade agreement for ag exports into China was actually for about 50% above 2017 levels by year end. So again, through the first half of 2020, we were down 3% globally. This was a time when the value of the dollar, just given the scale of the global crisis, had also increased by about 7% from January to April. So as a result of all four of these developments that I would highlight here this morning, the prices of many of our major ag commodities were down by around 20%, some a bit more than that, some have been on the, somewhere on the order of maybe even 30 or 35%. There was a lot of concern about the viability of ag operations at that time, and this would have also predated a lot of the announcements connected to government support, PPP loans, um, CFAP 1 or 2. So that's how we were looking at conditions in the second quarter of the year, but I want to now shift to how all of those four conditions have changed more recently and why that ties into a more optimistic view on financial conditions here going toward the end of the year. Um, the outlook that, that we would see going forward is obviously still heavily dependent on the path of the pandemic, but in each of these indicators, you'll see that, that, that the return to something closer to pre-pandemic levels is, is, is more optimistic. So let me first describe ethanol. Um, whereas we were seeing um, sharp declines in travel and gasoline consumption and thereby ethanol consumption and, and therefore production, ethanol has returned to about 95% of its pre-pandemic level um, here most recently. And again, keeping in mind that we were off by about 50% during the month of April. So that's, that's the first that I would highlight is that travel has picked back up. Again, concerns about COVID, concerns about resurgence, but still recognizing that, that that has improved. Many of our meat packing plants are operating very near their pre-pandemic levels. So whereas they were operating at around 60% capacity, um, those are operating for the most part close to where they had been prior to the pandemic. And so the bottlenecks that had emerged in the early months that were weighing heavily on our livestock markets are also considerably better. Consumer spending is still a question mark, and many households are still looking to buy food at, at other um, locations um, that, that would be grocery stores and restaurants as opposed to restaurants, which, which does have implica implications for um, food prices and commodities that go into that. But at the same time, the purchases are only down by about 10% as opposed to down by 50% in the early months of the pandemic. So many restaurants have found ways of delivering food or providing curbside um, service or other things that ultimately are able to meet the needs of, of consumers. So that being the third point. The fourth that I would highlight is probably the most optimistic development that we've seen in the past six months in agriculture, and that is related to exports. So again, keep in mind that the first half of the year, our export pace was 3% off of the previous year. When we look at the most recent three months that we have data for, we're actually up 4% um, relative to last year. Our agricultural exports for to China specifically are up by 9% relative to the 2017 pace, as opposed to being down 20% relative to that pace in the first half of the year. 
The value of the dollar, uh, again, as we've seen changes globally in, in the path of, of our global economies has retreated back to where we had been prior to the pandemic. So in, in all four of these cases, uh, conditions have turned um, uh, considerably more optimistic. The price and many prices of many of our major ag commodities have also recovered. Corn, for example, is the highest it's been in well over a year. Soybeans at multi-year highs, um, you know, still some some lagging markets in, in, in livestock markets, for example, and some concerns in dairy uh, that have been prevalent for some time, but re worth recognizing just the recovery in those commodities. Since April, then it's, it's, you know, it can't be overstated the significance of government payments this year that will be on the order of about $40 billion or roughly 40% of net farm income. And so as we look at the changes that had emerged from April to um, September and October, as we got closer to harvest, that was worth also emphasizing just in terms of the, also the, the in addition to the fundamental changes in the markets. So I wanted to highlight all of those conditions as changes because as we assessed financial conditions back in April and May, there was a lot of concern that we would see, for example, even as soon as harvest time, another new wave of farm bankruptcies, a, a rapid increase in delinquencies and potentially more pressure on land values. And we have not seen most of those things emerge. There has been ongoing pressure, I would say, that relates to some of the trends that we had been seeing even prior to the crisis, but not necessarily something that would represent severity that we were worried about during the early months of the pandemic. We had asked, for example, for a number of um, lenders that we have contact with to describe how they would perceive the environment going forward as it related to liquidity and asked ask that question, for example, back in the second quarter. And there were very significant concerns about liquidity as building on the concerns that we would have had in place. Um, and I mentioned the, the expected reductions in liquidity earlier in the year, even before the pandemic. As we've tried to assess conditions here more recently, and we did release a, an update on credit conditions for our seven state region last week that I would encourage people to take a look at. Um, many of those indicators that we track have turned definitely more optimistic than they were in April, maybe even more optimistic than they had been in the months prior. Still some concerns and some risks that I'll highlight here in just a second as I wrap up. But worth, worth recognizing, I think, just the broad strength there that we've seen um, across the, the industry. So, for example, we've seen um, land values at a time when there was concern that reduced cash flow and potential bankruptcies and forced asset liquidation could generate pressure on land values. We've actually seen a modest increase in land values. There's you know, a number of reasons for that, but I think um, it's worth highlighting that indicator specifically just because land represents the largest share of the value of the farm sector balance sheet in terms of assets. Um, delinquency rates, even though they have continued to trend higher, they've been relatively modest so far. And we've actually seen some recovery in repayment capacity and just generally the cash flow that's being generated um, alongside some of the government payments. So those are some of the optimistic improvements that we've seen. I, I would not go so far as to say, as I mentioned at the outset, that this represents necessarily an optimistic outlook overall but rather a markedly more optimistic view on financial conditions than what we would have been seeing in the second quarter. As we move into 2021, um, I'll highlight just a couple of things that I think will be relevant um, in terms of risks and in terms of the kinds of things that we'll still wanna be paying attention to. The first is just recognizing that the income environment or profit opportunities have still been relatively limited. 
there are some industries that have obviously been doing much better than others, but there still has been general weakness in terms of prices relative to input costs for the sector. And so cash flow going into 2021, as we go through loan renewal season, there are likely to still be some challenging conversations about profitability and what that looks like in 2021. Much of that will hinge on the strength or the potential persistent strength of ag commodity prices. And, and that in turn is going to be tied significantly to um, exports specifically. So commodity prices will determine as they as they typically do in any year, um, you know, the outlook for agriculture, but maybe even more so next year, just because of the changes and the sharp changes that we observed this year from a 25% reduction in some of our major markets to then fully recovering um, in, in, in some of those markets. One of the other key question marks and sources of uncertainty will obviously be the, the government support and government payments to agriculture. Prior to the increases in commodity prices, that government support was um, extremely significant in terms of the responses that we got from our, a lot of our contacts in, in, the, in the lending side of agriculture, recognizing that cash flow was still quite weak. That was something that was offsetting and mitigating a lot of the weaknesses, for example, during the summer months. As we go into 2021, though, depending on the path of commodity prices, uh, you know, the outlook for some of those government payments will be important in terms of determining the viability of a, a number of ag operations uh, in 2021. So I think the way that I'd like to leave um, this morning and then open it up to questions is, again, by recognizing that agriculture had been in a rather difficult place coming into this year. Many borrowers had been in the process of already restructuring debt a number of consecutive years facing carryover debt, seeing delinquencies increase, bankruptcies increase at a modest pace, and then seeing some of the initial severe impacts associated with the pandemic. But then three to four months later, seeing that conditions had, had ultimately turned and become a bit more favorable. As we go into 2021, I think that it's worth building on some of those strengths, but then still recognizing that we're probably going to be talking about a lot of the concerns that we've been talking about for the past few years, which is that some borrowers are still facing pressure, pressure on cash flow, um, pressure looking a bit further out, obviously dependent on commodity prices, depending on government payments, but still concerned about liquidity and leverage and ultimately then what that has the potential to lead to in terms of further pressure on land values. So those are many of the themes that we've been talking about the last few years. Each of the past few years has brought with it something relatively unique uh, where there has been maybe more support for the sector than what would have been initially anticipated. And of course, 2020 has been um, far more, far more unique in, in many different ways than those that we've faced in previous years. Well, again, that was a session there from the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual convention, which happened, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago now, I guess we are here just a week away from Christmas. Ashton, you got all your Christmas shopping done? I haven't got all of my Christmas shopping done. I was actually just telling you earlier this week that a lot of the Christmas shopping that I have done has actually been for myself because I have no self-control. <laughs> well, I understand. I understand a little bit there as well. But folks, if you need a gift to give to somebody for the Christmas season, tell them about the Agnes Daily Podcast. It's a free gift that they can listen to every day of the year, every weekday of the year, I should say. Find us, follow along with us on social media at Ag News Daily or connect with us 
on any of our past episodes you may have missed by heading to agnewsdaily.com. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.